You're listening to Bible Truth Feed, a podcast by Christadelphianvideo.org for Christadelphians and all those seeking the truth about the Bible message. Join us now as we present our latest episode. Quite a powerful exhortation now for you. And this episode is produced by Brother David Fraser from the Pine Town Ecclesia in South Africa. Brother David has worked with us very closely for a number of years now and this particular subject is quite relevant for this time of year when talking to our friends and our neighbours. So hope you enjoy it. God bless. We're thinking about these things now because of where we are in time, of how we're most likely feeling at the end of another trying and desperate year. The encouraging thing for us today, brothers and sisters, is that the world has been at this point once before. And that was at the time of the birth of our Saviour. So thinking then of the first advent of our Lord, the centuries had rolled past from the days of the patriarchs and the establishment of the nation of Israel, through all of the kings and the prophets who came to bring God's message to them, through invasions and captivities, through partial restoration, and now at the time of the birth of Christ, under Roman occupation. It was a time when the Roman Empire was at its greatest extent. It spanned from Britain in the west all the way to Parthia, which is modern-day Iran, in the east, a span of almost 7,000 kilometers. There was no time before it or after that the borders of Rome were greater. So Rome styled itself Terrarum Orbis Imperium, the empire of the whole earth. The Romans believed they were presiding over a universal empire, at least over the countries that mattered, the empire of the whole earth. And while kings rule over subjects, emperors rule over kings. And at this time, the emperor was Augustus Caesar, the powerful emperor of Rome, of the fourth dynasty, a strikingly powerful dynasty, a universal monarchy. And it was a rare time too in the Roman Empire of peace. The temple of Janus, which was always used during times of war to summon his aid, was shut. And a period of peace known as Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, was declared throughout the empire, a time of universal peace. So against this backdrop of a universal empire ruled over by a universal emperor in a time of universal peace, God's time was perfectly right for the birth of his son. The hymn we're going to sing after this exhortation has the beautiful opening verse. 
Earth was waiting, spent and restless, moved with mingled hope and fear. And the faithful few were sighing, surely, Lord, the day is near. Dear desire of all the nations, it is time he should appear. Now, most people weren't looking for the first appearance of our Lord, though there were always a few like we read in Luke 2, like Simeon and Anna. Most people, unfortunately, though, were preoccupied by the grind of daily life under the heavy hand of the Romans. And the Romans were bent on two principal things, as we know, keeping the peace and extracting taxes. But whatever the Romans wished, the king of heaven was at work. And in the wonderful words of Galatians 4, verse 4, Paul brings it all together when he says in Galatians 4, 4, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law. Isn't that beautiful? The time was full and complete. And that was exactly the right time when God chose to send his son. Now, there are two words for time in the Greek, and the one that's used here is chronos, which simply means an indefinite time. So what Paul was saying, that against the seemingly endless flow of the sea of time, without boundary, with year rolling into year, God chose his specific time to intervene when time was full and complete. And it was marked by a very specific and definitive event, the birth of our Savior. Or as we have in the language of Revelation 10 verse 6, that there should be time no longer. Time was full and complete for the birth of our Savior. So open your Bibles with me, if you would, to Luke chapter 2. We'll just pick a couple of verses from the early part of Luke 2. That was a providential journey that we read of in Luke chapter 2. And it starts in Luke 2 at verse 1. It came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And this taxing was first made when Cyrenius was governor of Syria. And all went to be taxed, everyone into his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth, unto Judea, unto the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. So Luke 2 starts with speaking about those days. It was specifically relating to the days of the dominance of Rome and its emperor, but also of heaven's counterpoint in the person of the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace. So there were very specific days chosen. Those days, this specifically happened. So they all went up for the census. All were subject to Roman authority. And Joseph and Mary departed from their poverty-stricken, low-class area in Galilee to make that long and arduous trip to Bethlehem. Just as Mary was awaiting the child of promise, 
so too time and prophecy itself was pregnant with the expectation of the appearing of our Savior. It was ready to burst forth with the completeness of all that it had foreshadowed. And as nothing halts the onset of birth, so God's plan of redemption would burst forth bodily into the world in the form of the birth of his son. As we read then Luke, Joseph was of a royal lineage, and we know too that Mary was. But what awaited them was uniquely designed by God. Jesus' message had to stand on its own merits, stripped of any royal connection, any royal lineage, so that it should be understood and valued for what it was intrinsically. And so it was, despite the enrollment of the royal city of Bethlehem, Jesus was forever associated by the Jews with the despised town of Nazareth in Galilee. But because God was directing events, it was essential that he should still be born in Bethlehem to fulfill the prophecies of the coming king. So the journey that Joseph and Mary would have undertaken would have been extremely uncomfortable for a woman so advanced in her pregnancy. It was about a 100-kilometer journey from where they lived down to Bethlehem. But both Joseph and the hand of Providence ensured she wasn't left in Nazareth. She was brought along for the journey. Now, the trip that was commonly taken was from Galilee around the east side of Jordan and then cutting up through Jericho and Ai to the Judean highlands. Now, the route was commonly taken that way, as we have spoken before, to avoid the Samaritans. But even if they had taken the direct route down the Judean hills on the west of Jordan, the route would have taken them in either event through Bethel and finally down to Bethlehem. Why is that so significant, brothers and sisters? Well, both towns are really important in a passage of scripture we'll consider just briefly in a moment. Bethlehem was highly significant in the lives of two other biblically important women, Ruth and Rachel. Now, we know Ruth married Boaz in Bethlehem, and Ruth became the mother of Obed, the father of Jesse, the father of David, hence the lineage to the Lord Jesus Christ, and the connection to Bethlehem. But Rachel, too, was buried in Bethlehem, she being the mother of Joseph, the saviour, and Benjamin, the son of my right hand. And the last journey of Rachel in this regard, brothers and sisters, is highly significant. We, we won't do any detail in it. You can read of it in Genesis 35 and look at all the parallels that you find there between this journey and the journey of Rachel on her last journey. And what we read there in Genesis 35 is that Bethel, the house of God, is where Yahweh spoke to Jacob and where Rachel began her labor. It was important that that was the beginning of sorrows at Bethel. And as her son Benjamin was born, who she wanted to call Benoni, son of my sorrows, and it was changed to Benjamin, Rachel died, and it says in Genesis 35, and was buried in the, in the way to Ephrath, 
which is Bethlehem, the house of bread. So poor Rachel, the ewe lamb, died in her birth, in, in, in giving birth, and was buried at Bethlehem. But in Genesis, the record adds another really critical detail. It adds a detail that the area they were residing in was beyond the Tower of Edar. Beyond the Tower of Edar. Just remember that for a moment. We'll pick it up when we come to draw this to a conclusion. So back in the record of Luke, what do we read in verses 6 to 7? And so it was that while they were there, that's at Bethlehem, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Now, with so many people traveling for the census, and that was important so they could claim the historical uh, rights, land rights, everybody did it. And everything was full to capacity. And you could imagine the first arrivals would have got there quickly, but no doubt the journey of Joseph and Mary would have been exacerbated by their slow progress because of her advanced stage of pregnancy. Now, it appears that the inn that is referred to in Scripture was a place on the outskirts of Bethlehem, interestingly called the habitation of Chimham. And where do we pick this up? We pick it up from Jeremiah 41, verse 17. Don't, don't turn there, but note it for a little later. In Jeremiah 41, verse 17, it's a place called the habitation of Chimham. Chimham means the place for strangers, which is an appropriate name for an inn. You know, people don't permanently live there, so therefore it's a place permanently filled with strangers. Who founded it? Well, interestingly, 2 Samuel 19 tells us that it was the son of Barzillai when he was in the court of David. And he founded that habitation of Chimham to commemorate the hospitality that had been shown by his father to David at the time of Absalom's rebellion in 2 Samuel 17. Hence, it was a place for strangers that had welcomed and encouraged David. So Barzillai commemorated that. And it's striking that this would have been the inn, the place where they would have likely headed to as the first port of call for their, their overnight uh, sojourn. Yet, despite the fact that this was so closely related to David and what he had done and was done for him, there was no place for the birth of David's greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Mary and Joseph would have to accept whatever accommodation they could get under those trying circumstances. So where did they settle then for the evening? Well, perhaps let's pick up that point from, from Genesis 35 as a clue. If the last journey of Rachel was the prototype, then Genesis 35 might provide the answer. Coupled with the fact, brothers and sisters, that the birth of Jesus was first reported to the shepherds, points to the fact that it's highly likely that the place where they overnighted was the shepherd's cottage in the fields of Edar. The very self-same words 
the very self-same place mentioned in Genesis 35, the shepherd's cottage in Edar. Now, Micah's prophecy in Micah 4 verse 8 seems to bear this out. This is what Micah 4 verse 8 says. And thou, O tower of the flock, and the Hebrew is Migdal Eder, if you actually have a look, look, at, uh, look up the, the Hebrew, it's the tower of the flock, Migdal Eder, the stronghold of the daughter of Zion, and to thee shall it come, even the first dominion. The kingdom shall come to the daughter of Jerusalem. So out at the place where the tower of the flock was, Migdal Eder, the son of God would, be, would come and be born of the first dominion. Why was this so especially significant, brothers and sisters? Why would there be shepherds out on the hills at night? Well, because they were watching over the sacrificial lambs for Passover, brothers and sisters. Kept outside of the city, outside of the bounds of Jerusalem, as the scribes and Pharisees had forced them to. But in anticipation of the great event. It was a walled-in garden with an elevated area so they could look out for animals or, or predators. And underneath was a simple shepherd's bothy, a little, little cottage where they would be able to stay for the night. So, brothers and sisters, why this is so poignantly beautiful is that even in the time of the joyous birth of the Christ was the reminder of the sacrifice that would be necessary to make him our saviour. And ever so it is. The cross comes before the crown. So it was there, brothers and sisters, amongst the hay and the straw, in the midst of all of that close and stuffy, stable uh, environment, that they settled down for the night, probably utterly exhausted from the fatigue of their journey. And before dawn, the Saviour was born. Such a lowly beginning of life upon, for, for Christ on earth is an astounding fact. A lowlier birth would be very hard for you and me to imagine. Parents were lowly, yes, of no, though of noble descent, but for the moment they were forced into the lowliest position in the city with their kindred to bed down with the ox and mule which have no understanding in offensive circumstances repugnant to most of us in our sense of decency. Christ, the Son of the Highest, began the humblest. For God has chosen the weak things of this world to confound the mighty. And then Luke continues in Luke 2. And there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Saviour, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you, you shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, a representation of, morality, of mortality, by the way, from John 20, verse 6. 
He was wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. Think of where the angels went, brothers and sisters. They didn't go to Herod's palace that was nearby. Nor did they go to the home of a respectable rabbi of the city of David, where Christ had been born. Neither did they go to Caesar Augustus's court to reveal themselves to him. No, they chose the company of lowly men, men who were humble in their own eyes, yet deeply interested in the promises of God to reveal the message. Though the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ was not shown to the world at large, it was nonetheless a very momentous occasion to the angels. Imagine working through all of time to bring this to fruition, the one on whom God's plan and purposes and plan and purpose for all time was pivoting. So first only one angel appears, possibly the angel Gabriel, And the shepherds were greatly afraid, but they were soon quieted by those beautiful words. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. The Romans had brought their peace to the world in some form, but what was heaven's gift was greater to all people. And brothers and sisters, the core message we believe, despite the world, is of great joy. And they are truly good news tidings. They wondered what the message would be. Unto you is born this day in the city of David a saviour, which was Christ the Lord. The time had come, brothers and sisters, that it became instead of a an indefined time, it became this day when time was fulfilled and there was time no more. Suddenly, of course, scripture says, there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host. All of those who were invisible before, the eyes of the shepherds had been held from seeing them, were now visible in the surroundings. The surroundings lit up by the glory of the Shekinah light, outshining the sparkling stars of heaven on that cool Middle Eastern night. Not only did they see the angels, as the shepherds, but they heard them too. As that wonderful heavenly host burst into song, glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace and goodwill toward men. Think of the contrast here, brothers and sisters. At the time of Rome's greatest emperor, of her global empire, of Rome's declared universal peace, was heaven's response. The Prince of Peace, the King of all the earth, yet born in the humblest of all circumstances. A greater contrast could hardly be imagined. So Micah has something beautiful to say in the continued prophecies in Micah 5, verses 2 to 4. But thou, Bethlehem, Ephrata, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, Yet out of thee shall come forth unto me, that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from old, 
from everlasting. Therefore will he give them up until the time that she which travaileth hath brought forth. The travail of Mary was equal to the travail of time itself and of all the prophecies to bring forth the one who was the fulfillment of all of these things. And the remnant of his brethren shall return unto the children of Israel. And the word is used there for Jacob, the converted Jacob, and the connection to Rachel is complete. And then Micah says, he shall stand and feed. And the words that are used, they are feeding off the flock. And he shall stand and feed in the strength of Yahweh and the majesty of the name of Yahweh his God. And they shall abide. For now he shall be great. Where? To the ends of the earth. Compared with all that Rome thought it was in its glory. Heaven's king will be great to the very ends of the earth. So no wonder Isaiah opens with that in, in Isaiah 40 with beautiful words of praise. O Zion, that bring us good tidings, the gospel news. Get thee up to the high mountains, O Jerusalem, that bring us good tidings. Lift up thy voice with strength like the angels did. Lift it up, be not afraid. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God, your Elohim. Behold, Yahweh Elohim will come with a strong hand, Benjamin, son of my right hand, and his arm shall rule for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his work before him. He shall feed his flock like a shepherd. He shall gather his lambs with his arm and carry them in his bosom and shall gently lead those that are with young. So in conclusion then, brothers and sisters, why is this so important to us now? Well, just like then, earth is waiting, but utterly spent and restless. The world in which we are is burdened with troubles and uncertainties like rarely seen. It's filled with fear and despair. There are not many people you talk to are hopeful for the future. And just like then, how few are watching and preparing for the real visitation from heaven. Yet, unseen like it was then before, the angels are active in their preparation for this event. But not only that, our king himself is active in the preparation of the world's events while he is sitting at the right hand of his father until the message goes that he should reveal himself in the earth. So it's not long then, my dear brothers and sisters, until time will once again be full and complete. When our Saviour, like the first time when time was full and complete, will appear in the earth when time is complete once again, but now as our promised King. Referring to this time, Paul says in Ephesians 1 verse 10, In the dispensation of the fullness of times, God might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him. Paul there speaks of the fullness of times, and the word he uses for times there is the second Greek word, 
the word kairos, which means a set and a proper time. There is a fixed time, a fullness of time, which is coming, says Paul, when God will gather all things together into Christ in heaven and in earth. Jesus himself used the same Greek word when he referred to the time, as he says in Mark 1 verse 15, the time is fulfilled, the fixed and proper time, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent ye and believe the gospel. So brothers and sisters, despite the seemingly endless flow of time, these years rolling fretfully one into the other, just as at the first appearance of Christ, there will be a set time to favor Zion when time is full and there's time no more. That's why the Lord Jesus Christ, in that beautiful prophecy of Luke 21, leaves us with these parting words for today. Jesus says in Luke 21, Jerusalem will be trodden down of the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. Until time is filled up, then there will be time no more and I'll be in the earth. You're going to see signs in the sun and the moon and the stars amongst the body politic, amongst religious organizations and all structures on the earth. On the earth, distress of nations with perplexity, the sea and the waves roaring, men's hearts failing them for fear and for looking after those things which are coming on the earth. For the powers of heaven shall be shaken. And then they shall see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory, unrevealed, yet all of a sudden revealed in power and great glory. When these things begin to come to pass, then look up, lift up your heads, for your redemption draweth nigh. The time to favor Zion is coming, brothers and sisters, as certain as the day is from the night, and our Lord will be here to redeem us. Thanks be to God for the gracious gift of the birth of our Savior. Amen.
Thank you for joining us. We hope you found the episode helpful. Don't forget, most of these episodes are also available as videos on our video channel, cdvideo.org. So head over and take a look. If you have any comments or questions or suggestions, please get in touch or leave us a voice message. We love to hear your feedback. You can email us at btf at cdvideo.org. If you enjoyed the episode, then please share it with others. Until next time, may God bless you in your studies and your walk towards God's kingdom. Amen. Thank you.